0: Hi, I'm Shannon, the podcast producer here at C SPAN Radio, and on this week's Lectures in History podcast, a discussion on author C.S. Lewis and his views on law, politics, and government. Calvin University professor Micah Watson shares how all those issues are connected to Mr. Lewis's Christian beliefs. Stay tuned, class starts right after this.
1: And it is a great privilege for me to be with you at Acton University this summer. Eight years ago, our family had to make a decision about a move, and we ended up deciding to come to Grand Rapids, and in our pro and con list, the physical presence of the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids was a major plus on the good side. So I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm also glad that we are here in person. It wasn't too long ago when we had to meet in a rather Gnostic fashion, and so that we are able to meet incarnationally is a very good thing. I'm also delighted to join you because we are discussing the intersection of C.S. Lewis, Liberty, and Law, or Jack Lewis as he was known to his friends and family. If your name was Clive Staples, you might go by Jack as well. If you're attending this session, I probably don't have to sell you on why Lewis, Liberty, and Law is a fun combination. I hope you'll find our conversation illuminating whether you're new to Lewis or a long-time admirer. Speaking of newcomers to Lewis, we get one nice account of meeting Lewis for the first time from George Sayer, who was a student of Lewis's at Oxford and one of Lewis's first biographers. He writes, As I walked away from new buildings, and as an aside, Oxford's new buildings were completed in 1458. I found the man that Lewis had called Toller's, sitting on one of the stone steps in front of the arcade. How did you get on, he asked. Oh, I think rather well. I think he will be a most interesting tutor to have. Interesting? Yes, he's certainly that, said the man who I later learned was J.R.R. Tolkien. You'll never get to the bottom of him. Well, we're not going to get to the bottom of him either, right here now, but we are going to try to make some headway into Lewis's views. I want to hit on four areas about Lewis' law and liberty in my opening remarks and as uh, food for thought for our discussion afterwards. First, that contrary to the conventional wisdom that Lewis disdained and ignored politics, His personal life was very much intertwined with politics and law and sometimes even policy. And one event in particular spurred him to write a short essay in which he endorses a version of limited government theory in almost explicitly Lockean terms. So the first point is about Lewis's personal and indeed biographical interest in things political. Second, we'll talk a little bit about a particular justice issue that Lewis was quite invested in. He was no wonk, to be sure, but he did get a bit into the public policy weeds when it came to the criminal justice system. Lewis cared deeply about law on the human level and its impact on human flourishing and freedom. Third, we'll move from that specific policy issue to the big political picture, Lewis wrestled with the purpose of government on a macro scale, particularly with his very conflicted attitude about the welfare state. Lewis was, by instinct and temperament, very sympathetic to a more libertarian approach and a get-off-my-lawn conservatism. But he also later in life became more aware of the plight of the less fortunate, and thus, in his view, more open to government solutions to poverty. Fourth, we move from human-made law in human politics to God-authored law with a capital L. Lewis is justly famous for his defense of natural law, or what he referred to as the law of human behavior in mere Christianity, or the Tao in the abolition of man. This is the enduring law, from which any merely human law gets its legitimacy. As we will see, Lewis is not so much a natural law theorist, but he is, it is safe to say, a natural law apologist. I'll conclude by suggesting that all of Lewis's musings about politics, law, both civil and natural, and liberty are framed in a teleological context, that is, his understanding of liberty, properly understood, is directional. It's heading somewhere. We as human beings are heading somewhere. And to miss this aspect of Lewis's teaching is to misunderstand everything else we might get from him. So claim number one, the personal and the political. The conventional wisdom on Lewis was that he really didn't care much for politics or for law, and that he thus would not have spent much time on those things or liberty either. And there's some truth to that in one respect, but the truth is also that he was surrounded by talk of law and politics from his early childhood all the way through his death on November 22, 1963, also the same day that JFK goes down in Dallas and Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World, passes away. We don't have time for the full case about Lewis's politics today or his views. He did remain interested in politics throughout his entire life. His father, Albert Lewis, was a lawyer and apparently took his work home with him. Lewis's older brother, Warney, described their childhood as dominated by a one-sided torrent of grumble and vituperation about Irish politics And it's admittedly hard to avoid talk of law and politics if you're growing up in Northern Ireland, as Lewis did. Lewis's life as a young man was also dominated by political matters. As after 1914, all young British men his age knew that sooner or later they would be drafted to serve in the First World War. And Lewis did serve in the infantry in World War I fighting in the trenches and getting wounded. His father had tried to get him in the artillery, uh, but Lewis was so bad at math that that wasn't going to be an option. So if you struggle with math, you are in good company uh, with Lewis. His life as a young man after the war uh, became much more scholarly, of course. And on his return to Oxford, he wrote to his father about reconvening with his fellow students, most now veterans, in the junior common room of University College in Oxford in 1919. And they read the minutes from their last meeting, made some five years before, with nothing to record in the meantime. I don't know of any little thing that has made me realize the absolute suspension and waste of these years more thoroughly, Lewis reflected. All the enlistments and training, the viscera and trauma of the fighting men in the trenches, and the resulting physical and spiritual brokenness that came from political decisions and counter-decisions made by European politicians, civil servants, and military leaders. The staggering waste and incomprehensible loss caused by the Great War cast an immense shadow over the -the turn-of-the-century generation of Britons. It's no wonder that Lewis would harbor a lifelong distrust of government. As with most of us, Lewis's political views were intimately connected to his biography. And so biographical details shed some light on those views. I want to focus on one particular event from Lewis's personal life that gives us an interesting insight into his view of law and liberty. Lewis married Joy Davidman Gresham in 1956, first in a civil ceremony and then in a real Anglican service in December of that year as Joy's death from cancer was imminent. This is the account depicted in the film and the play Shadowlands. Joy did recover from her cancer, and they had a four short but happy years together before the cancer returned and took her life at the age of 43 in July of 1960. What you may not know about Joy Lewis was that she was a divorcee, a former communist, a trenchant and rather salty literary critic, and an American uh, of Eastern European Jewish background. And as a good American, she of course had a shotgun. And she was known to be rather prolific with that shotgun in the backyard of the Lewis's at the kilns in Oxford. During this time, the Lewises had some trouble with some local young men, really hooligans, who would trespass on their property and vandalize, steal, cut down trees, all sorts of mischief, crimes. And on one occasion, when Lewis was wheeling Joy around for a walk in their backyard, they caught the young men in the act. Lewis chivalrously jumped in front of Joy's wheelchair, ostensibly to protect her. And I can't repeat in this company exactly what Joy said, but I will paraphrase. It was something to the effect of, gosh darn it, Jack, get out of my way, you're blocking my aim. (laughs) One result of this encounter was Lewis's rather curmudgeonly piece, Delinquents in the Snow, published in a humor magazine in 1957. For you see, some of the hooligans were later caught by the police and tried in court. In this essay, Lewis complains about how the legal process had failed miserably. The presiding judge had let them off with a fine and encouraged them to stop such pranks as if planned robbery and vandalism are mere pranks. Lewis worried about what such leniency might mean for England's political future. And he took this opportunity to describe how the social compact should work in theory while warning of the consequences if the system broke down in practice. According to the classical political theory of this country, Lewis summarized, we surrendered our right of self-protection to the state on the condition that the state would protect us. So a dilemma arises when the state does not live up to its end of the bargain. The state's promise of protection is what morally grounds our obligation to civil obedience, according to Lewis. If this sounds to you a little bit like John Locke, then I think you're on to something. The government's protection of natural rights, including the right to property, is why it is right for us to pay taxes and wrong for us to exercise vigilante justice. Lewis argues, the state protects us less because it is unwilling to protect us against criminals at home and manifestly grows less and less able to protect us against foreign enemies. At the same time, it demands from us more and more. We seldom had fewer rights and liberties nor more burdens, and we get less security in return. While our obligations increase, their moral ground is taken away. Lewis drew the same conclusion from this state of affairs that Locke did. When the state cannot or will not protect, Lewis warns, nature is come again and the right of self-protection reverts to the individual. I share this reflection of Lewis's not only as an excuse to tell that story about Joy Lewis and her shotgun, but because it illustrates well the libertarian-leaning, leave-me-alone, literally get-off-my-lawn side of Lewis's personality. In most of his public writings, he was very careful not to appear too partisan politically one way or another. ...going so far as to turn down Winston Churchill's proposal to honor Lewis... ...by making him a commander of the British Empire. Lewis feared that would be used by some of his critics to paint him as a political conservative. But we do see here in this episode, and the piece that resulted from it, a little bit of Lewis's views. He had a deep distrust of government power, whether it was misused in foreign wars or not used properly enough to keep the domestic peace. And this deep distrust was not merely theoretical, but personal, felt by Lewis. So claim number two, Lewis on law and public policy. Lewis's interest in criminal justice extended beyond this particular case with the hooligans. In May of 1962, Lewis wrote to the poet T.S. Eliot the following: "We must have a talk. I'd wish I wish you'd write an essay on it about punishment. The modern view, by excluding the retributive element and concentrating solely on deterrence and cure, is hideously immoral." It is vile tyranny to submit a man to compulsory cure or sacrifice him to the deterrence of others unless he deserves it. One might wonder why Lewis didn't write the essay himself, except that he did. Thirteen years earlier, Lewis wrote The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment, which appeared first in an Australian law journal in 1949. He sent it to an Australian journal because he could get no hearing for it in England. Nevertheless, the piece did elicit responses from three law professors in Australia, to whom Lewis then in turn responded, and the resulting back and forth was published in Res Judicate, then the law journal of the University of Melbourne Law School. You can now find Lewis's side of this spirited but well-mannered debate In the God in the Dock uh, collection. In his delinquents essay about the hooligans, Lewis was concerned about uh, offenders being let off too easily and what that means for the fundamental social compact. Here he is concerned with criminals being treated as less than human. He was worried about developments in European jurisprudence such that deterrence and rehabilitation become the chief goals of the criminal justice system, rather than punishing a wrongdoer simply because he or she deserves it. It may sound paradoxical, but Lewis believed that when we punish a human being for a wrong, we acknowledge the dignity of that human being and make possible restoration because that human being should have and could have known better. Have dignity enough to have known better. There's nothing wrong with deterring crime or rehabilitating a criminal as a side effect of a prison term, Lewis argued. But if those are the chief priorities, then there are serious problems. First, deterrence treats the criminal, who is still a human being made in God's image of intrinsic worth, as a mere means rather than an end in himself. In that case, the more effective the punishment the more effective the punishment show that the state might put on for the public, the better from the point of deterrence. What Lewis worried about was the truth of whether the accused is actually guilty or not doesn't matter. It's the effect of the show. Rehabilitation as the chief priority, Lewis worried, meant that instead of criminals being sentenced by their peers to a designated amount of time as punishment for what they've done, criminals will instead be treated as patients who are sick. And it will be experts in psychology and penology who will determine when or if they are ever cured, and only then will they be released. And unlike a prison sentence, there's no time limit on when that will happen. And yet the individual's freedom will still be restricted. It will still feel like a sentence. There's no limit to that restriction in principle except what the expert doctors have to say. And who are we, ordinary citizens, to question the considerable expertise of the experts? Lewis insisted that that only the concept of moral desert can ground legitimate punishment and limit the state's abuse of power. We see in this essay how seriously Lewis took human freedom and dignity and that he applied it even to those people, criminals, whose interests and dignity society is most likely to ignore or overlook. We see also in the responses from the Australian scholars of law that they took Lewis seriously on this point, which is rather remarkable given his day job was as a tutor of English and a scholar of medieval and Renaissance literature. We also see how important this policy issue was to Lewis. As 13 years later, near the end of his life, while convalescing from serious health issues, he tries to get T.S. Eliot to take up the case. Claim number three. Thus far, we've discussed Lewis's personal connections to his thinking about politics and a particular policy area he cared a great deal about, criminal justice. Now we move to Lewis's thinking about government at a more theoretical level, and in particular, the welfare state and both the legitimate purpose of government and the temptations that come with the use of power. Lewis was deeply concerned about the abuses of an overly ambitious government. After all, human depravity gives both the rationale for government as well as reason to fear its excesses. In a short essay called Equality, Lewis says, I am a Democrat because I believe in the fall of man. As a Calvin professor, I have to get human depravity and the fall in there by contract, and Lewis here endorses it. He says that many others endorse democracy for the wrong reasons, and he mentions here Rousseau, because they think human beings so naturally good that everyone deserves a share in government. Lewis goes on to say, I know for myself I don't deserve a share in ruling a hen roost, let alone a government. Lewis wrestled with the tension between his desire for a limited government, which both protects and respects a robust private sphere, and massive social needs that seemingly only government can address. Government must exist, Lewis acknowledged, but he also insisted that government exists for the good of individual groups and uh, individuals and their liberty. Consider what Lewis wrote about the ultimate purpose of government. As long as we are thinking of natural values, we must say that the sun looks down on nothing half so good as a household laughing together over a meal, or two friends talking over a pint of beer, or a man alone reading a book that interests him, and that all economies, politics, laws, and institutions, save insofar as they prolong and multiply such scenes, are a mere plowing the sand and sowing the ocean, a meaningless vanity and vexation of the spirit. Collective activities are, of course, necessary, but this is the end to which they are necessary. Lewis insisted that the state exists for individuals and households and not the other way round. We see here a break from some of Lewis's favorite teachers, Plato and Aristotle. Lewis was a Platonist, Lewis was an Aristotelian. But both those thinkers alike favor the collective over the individual, the public over the private. And Aristotle, in particular, defines political activity as an intrinsically natural part of human flourishing. Lewis, on the other hand, saw political activity as only a means, and often a distasteful one at that, to genuine aspects of human flourishing not an intrinsic part of flourishing itself. Yet even as only a means, collective activities are necessary. And Lewis recognized the appeal of technocratic government solutions to address our collective social problems. The temptation to invest government with more power, he noted, always works on a real need that has been neglected. Lewis feared that legitimate human problems that require social coordination and collective activity will give rise to solutions that are far worse than the original crisis, something we may have witnessed in the last few years. In his book, That Hideous Strength, the conclusion to his science fiction trilogy, this, there's a conspiratorial government organization, the NICE, Uh, the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. Uh, This illustrates exactly his fear. And if you actually go and Google uh, UK NICE, there is such a government organization. It's just, uh, it's not about that. It's about something else. Um, Lewis writes, We have on the one hand a desperate need, hunger, sickness, and the dread of war. We have on the other the conception of something that might meet it, omnicompetent global technocracy. Three pretty scary words. The temptation to use a real need as a pretext to accumulate and concentrate power is not a new temptation. But the difference in the mid-20th century, Lewis warned, was that success looked more and more like a legitimate possibility. He writes, In the ancient world, individuals have sold themselves as slaves in order to eat. So in society. Here is a witch-doctor who can save us from the sorcerers, a warlord who can save us from the barbarians, a church that can save us from hell. Give them what they ask. Give ourselves to them, bound and blindfold, if only they will. Perhaps the terrible bargain will be made again. We cannot blame men for making it. We can hardly wish for them not to. Yet we can hardly bear that they should. The question about progress has become the question whether we can discover any way of submitting to the worldwide paternalism of a technocracy without losing all personal privacy and independence. He closes with this question. Is there any possibility of getting the super welfare state's honey and avoiding the sting? Whether we can get that welfare state honey without the sting was perhaps the most pressing practical political question for Lewis, and the stakes were, and I think remain, enormous. While acknowledging the great needs for which technology and big government provides answers, Lewis endorsed simple values that he feared were endangered by a know-it-all state. To live one's life in his own way, to call his house his castle, to enjoy the fruits of his own labor, to educate his children as his conscience directs, to save for their prosperity after his death. This is what liberty meant for Lewis. This was the good life. He was skeptical that the modern state can deliver a cure worth the cost. Lewis predicted soberly that, as always, some men will take charge of the destiny of others. They will be simply men, none perfect, some greedy, cruel, and dishonest. With an allusion to the namesake of our institutional host this week, he asked rhetorically about the welfare state, whether we have discovered some new reason why, this time, power should not corrupt as it has done before. Claim number four. Lewis as natural law apologist. We move now from lowercase law and liberty and politics to law and liberty with uppercase L's. For every human legal system and political regime rests on an underlying view of human nature and morality. And we can't talk about Lewis and law without discussing natural law. As I've said, I believe Lewis was a natural law apologist rather than a theorist. We don't go to Lewis for the nooks and crannies of how a natural law system delivers specific moral conclusions on this or that particular issue. But Lewis does articulate the inescapable reality of the natural law. He defends natural law in positive terms, arguing for the reality of the moral law, but also in negative terms, showcasing how stark the alternatives are if we abandon the natural law. He also delivers these apologies, these defenses, in straightforward, logical works like Mere Christianity and The Abolition of Man. this year being the 80th anniversary of the abolition of man. He also illustrates these ideas imaginatively in his fiction, most prom- uh, prominently in the Ransom trilogy or the sci-fi trilogy, but also in the Chronicles of Narnia and other writings. On August 6 of 1941, Lewis delivered the first of his celebrated BBC broadcast talks, which later would be compiled and published, As mere Christianity. The BBC had invited Lewis to give a series of talks explaining the foundational beliefs of Christianity to a war weary nation. And in his first 15 minute segment, Lewis introduced or reintroduced to the British public the idea of natural law. He began by directing our attention to everyday conversation, listening to others talk about how we are constantly appealing to moral standards in interacting with each other. I gave you a bit of my orange, you give me a bit of yours. Hey, don't cut in line. Uh, You promised you would do this, so we are constantly appealing to some kind of standard. This doesn't make sense unless we believe that there is a standard out there that we can appeal to. A law of sorts. This law, Lewis explained, was called the law of nature because people thought that everyone knew it by nature and did not need to be taught it. And, he added, I believe they were right. If they were not, then all the things we said about the war were nonsense. What was the sense in saying the enemy were in the wrong unless right is a real thing which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced? If they had had no notion of what we mean by right, then though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than for the color of their hair." Lewis used the confrontation with the evils of Nazism, and he gets a pass from Godwin's Law because he actually fought Germans in the First World War. Uh, He used the evil of Nazism to highlight the reality of the moral law in a dramatic way. If your moral ideas can be true, he argued, and those of the Nazis less true, then there must be something, some real morality for them to be true about. The reality of basic moral principles, known on some level by everyone, was foundational to Lewis's understanding of the Christian message. The first basic point of his talk, therefore, was that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. An essential second claim from Lewis was, They do not, in fact, behave in that way. He maintained that these two claims, that there is a natural moral law and we fail to keep it, are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. Moreover, Lewis did not think that a post-Christian society could recover moral truth by first directly becoming Christian, and to be clear, he believed that the Britain of his day was post-Christian, in the same comparison as a divorcee is to someone who is married. Lewis thought the truth of the matter was the reverse. Instead of returning directly to Christian ethics, the world must first simply return to a belief in real objective morality. Only then would it be open to returning to Christianity. For, he writes, Christianity is not the promulgation of a moral discovery. It is addressed only to penitents, only to those who admit their disobedience to the known moral law. It offers forgiveness for having broken and supernatural help towards keeping that law, and by so doing reaffirms it. In other words, you have to admit you're sick before you will see the doctor, and Jesus did not come for the healthy. Uh, In his essay, God in the Dock, Lewis posits that the main difference between the ancients and the moderns is that the ancients, Christians, Jews, pagans, all believed that there was something wrong with them, and they were in the dock or on trial. God was the judge. We moderns, Lewis says, put God in the dock. He has to make his case as to why we should believe in him. We might agree with this case and believe, but the roles are reversed. One challenge faced by the modern world for the Christian, for Lewis, for morally serious people, is that many deny that morality has any objective basis at all. Though that doesn't mean that they are relativist or mild-mannered about their own moral claims, as we see in our civil or uncivil discourse today, far from it. But morality on various modern accounts is merely a social construct that exists to serve the interests of its creators. That idea, Lewis argued, was the disease that will certainly end our species and, in my view, damn our souls if it is not crushed. Lewis did not so much argue to the conclusion that the natural law exists. That's a tricky proposition for reasons we'll get to shortly, But he is trying to persuade his audience and us that we already believe in objective morality. Lewis also didn't just defend natural law, he played offense. He attacked the alternatives, and nowhere more powerfully than in the three lectures that became his book, The Abolition of Man. This was originally delivered as three lectures at the University of Durham, as I mentioned, 80 years ago this year. One of the most intriguing features of abolition is how Lewis frames the debate. Many works of natural law theory take something of a defensive position where the author assumes that natural law is on trial or in the dock, as Lewis might say, and must be proved valid or reasonable. Lewis does not take that tack. Instead, he turns the tables. Instead of assuming that the Tao, his word for the natural law, must be established or defended, he proposes to interrogate the alternatives. Critics aim to undermine the old values by teaching students to see through or check the privilege of old-fashioned sentiments and moral judgments. But why think we should only defend our position? Why not ask what motivates them, what grounds their positions, and what do they propose as a replacement to objective morality. One important clue to understanding what Lewis is up to in the abolition of man is found near the conclusion to the last battle, Lewis's apocalyptic conclusion to the Chronicles of Narnia. In this scene, the forces of evil have been defeated. Goodness has prevailed. This may be a spoiler, but Aslan wins in the Narnia Chronicles. All that remains is to pass into Aslan's country for eternity. Yet one troubling plot point remains unresolved. The treacherous dwarfs are determined to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. They sit huddled and miserable in the dark confines of what they take to be a black hole. Queen Lucy, always Lewis's moral exemplar, tries to persuade the dwarfs to see things as they really are. They are not in a black hole, but in the midst of the open sky, the green grass, and fragrant flowers. Paradise awaits them if only they have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lucy tearfully begs Aslan to help the dwarfs, and he provides them a sumptuous feast, but to no avail. Not even Aslan will force those who choose blindness to see what truly is. They will not let us help them, Aslan says. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. The last chapter of The Abolition of Man is about that prison. It is about the predicament of those people who do not merely misunderstand or misapply this or that moral teaching, but who reject root and branch the very possibility of moral reality. It is about the predicament of nihilism. From Lewis's perspective, writing a book of natural law theory, when many people question the very foundations of morality itself, would be something of a fool's errand. You don't write chess manuals for those who think games a complete waste of time. You cannot persuade someone to take their medicine if they reject the good of health altogether. You don't review an opera for cultural Philistines who despise music. One has to first write about the intrinsic good of play, the good of health, and the good of art and music. Only if those basic premises or goods are accepted can one have a conversation or even an argument about games, medicine, and music. So how does one argue about first principles? Lewis believes we cannot argue to them. We argue from them. He says, the primary moral principles on which all others depend are rationally perceived. We just see that there is no reason why my neighbor's happiness should be sacrificed to my own, as we just see that things which are equal to the same thing are equal to one another. If we cannot prove either axiom, this is not because they are irrational, but because they are self evident and all proofs depend on them. Their intrinsic reasonableness shines by its own light to not see that reasonableness is to be like the Narnian dwarfs, morally blind. Lewis does not attempt to prove the validity of natural law, a quixotic task, but rather he appeals to our capacity to reason, to illustrate the alternatives to a belief in fundamental moral principles. Lewis hopes to awaken a realization in his readers that they do, after all, believe in natural law. He does this differently in each of the three uh, chapters, laying out in Men Without Chess a platonic and Aristotelian picture of the human person, as well as the high stakes for moral education in the political community. In the second chapter, the way Lewis dissects any attempt to extract one isolated component of the natural law and build a new ethic just about around that, while getting rid of all the others. And the last chapter, The Abolition of Man, does not so much present the positive case for natural law as it does reveal the stark and to a minimally decent moral person horrific alternative. Well, we have been through a brief survey of some of Lewis's thoughts about law and liberty, glancing quickly at his biography and his thinking about criminal justice and the welfare state, and we've touched very briefly on Lewis's work defending natural law and putting its alternatives to the test. I said earlier that I would conclude with a brief word on Lewis's ultimate understanding of liberty. In Mere Christianity, Lewis uses a fleet of ships to illustrate morality. Morality consists of two parts, he writes. One we might think of as external relations. Making sure each ship interacts well with all the other ships, not cutting them off, not running into them. The other part of morality for these ships is internal, keeping one's own ship seaworthy by proper sailoring and ship maintenance and discipline. But Lewis notes the two parts are interconnected. If you let your own ship go to pot, you're not likely to long avoid mishaps with the other ships. And if you're constantly running into other ships, your own won't remain seaworthy very long. But there is a third element. And that is where the ships are sailing to. Lewis took seriously law and politics and culture, justice, literature, all sorts of earthly goods. But ultimately, true liberty is not the absence of restraint in the ambitious pursuit of whatever one's desires happen to be. It is not sailing however one likes to wherever one likes. Genuine liberty is the freedom to become what we ought to be, to go where we are called, And Lewis was nothing if not insistent that we are meant for more than this world. All of those goods I've mentioned—culture, justice, literature, music, family—are second things. They're vitally important, wonderful, creational goods, but they are not the first thing. Ultimately, one must understand Lewis within the context of his Christian faith. The practical problems of religion and law and political liberty are important, and Lewis offers some resources— with which to grapple with these problems. Understanding natural law and objective morality is crucial, and Lewis's thought on the matter can be instructive. Our resistance individually and collectively to the moral law and rationality itself is discouraging, and Lewis's logical arguments and fictional apologetics should inspire us to do better. But Lewis, the mere Christian, would have us remember that for Christians, the success of our witness depends not, even, uh, not only or even primarily upon these things. It depends on the people of God living out their faith with integrity, humility, and verve. We will not achieve the perfect answer, nor be perfect people on this side of eternity. And though this earthly life is important, it does take place in the shadowlands and does not compare with the coming reality of heaven, where we will go further up and further in. The answers Lewis did leave behind, positive and negative arguments for the moral law, the rational Christian apologetic and imaginative fiction, should inspire those who share his vision to continue in that tradition. As Lewis observed, the great heroes of the faith all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. We would do well to do likewise. Thank you. Okay. At this point, we have a chunk of time for Q&A. We have a mic here and a mic uh, here. So if you have any questions, challenges, diatribes, denunciations, uh, come on up.
2: I'm really fascinated uh, with Lewis's understanding of social order. And I appreciate the way in which this lecture has kind of illustrated some of his concerns with um, not allowing the state to kind of trump other kinds of orders, friendships and whatnot. Um, I do remember in one of Lewis's essays, it might have been membership. He talked about democracy being a necessary fiction, uh, and that it was something that that This idea that we all have a Kind of a fundamental equality Is actually an illusion But a necessary illusion I'd just love to hear you kind of comment on This concept of Lewis Which is that democracy is a necessary fiction
1: Yeah I think um, So there's the essay membership And then there's the, the shorter essay equality And I think what he says And I could get the chapter and verse wrong I think he says that democracy rests on The fiction of our equality um, and so he takes aim at equality there uh, as a good in itself. He does not think equality is good in itself. He likens it to medicine and clothing that it is needed because of the fall. That actually God created us to delight in unequal relationships. We look up to our parents. We might then help our children when they're younger. Uh, we look up to our coach or a mentor or to a saint, right? We, we don't claim to be equal to a saint. Um, and so he, he does, now he's not against equality as, um, you know, Abraham Kiber called some goods mechanical goods or goods that we need because of the fall. So Lewis, in that essay, defends the, and, and thinks that legal equality is, is very good. Um, and he says we need more economic equality. Um, but he says that, uh, so, so he's, not, he's not against equality in those spheres. What he worries about, and here he's um, swallowing he's a little bit. He didn't read Tocqueville, I don't think, but Tocqueville was concerned about this as well that the, the the chief liability of a democratic government could be a democratic culture in which everyone thinks I'm as good as you to the next person. And he thinks that's, that leads to greed, right? Which is it's a spiritual poison. Um, so he, he does say in that, in that essay that we should uh, work for more equality in the legal sphere and in the economic sphere, but that um, in, our, in our relationships, uh, we should not be so troubled by by inequality. Um, I'll say one more. Th- it's a, so it's a, it's one of, I actually have another talk on, on this subject, so I'll talk too long about it. But in, in The Great Divorce, if any of you have read The Great Divorce, that is Lewis imagining himself uh, visiting hell and then riding a bus up to, up to heaven. And in that book, um, he has a vision in heaven of a, of a woman coming in who is, who is in front of a great procession, just completely celebrated such that Lewis almost wonders if it might be our, our Lord's mother. Uh, and his guide, George McDonald, says, no, no, uh, that's someone you'll never have heard of. Um, but during her life in England, she she was um, uh, saintly. She took in the poor and the kids and even animals. and She has this incredible life. So Lewis's vision of what greatness is, you know, is not Musk or, or Bill Gates or Churchill. It's someone who lives a, a saintly and sanctified life following uh, mm-hmm. God's commands. So, yeah, thanks. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. I'm, I'm Daniel Pitt. Um, I was wondering if you could talk some more about um, Lewis's concept of freedom. Uh, My understanding is that he believes that the law enhances our freedom. So it's not um, uh, freedom from law, actually rule of law, and laws actually uh, provide the basis for human flourishing. Is that correct? Uh, I think given the fall, we're going to need human laws... To direct us. So when we think about guardrails on a road, that limits us, but it limits us for our good to get where we should go. So there is a sense, or I think it's quite right to say uh, that he endorses a view that law um, restricts us for our good, but he is also, as a believer in the fall, he knows that the government is also peopled by fallen officials, and he is quite worried about the intrusions of that. So he's, in terms of what he's worried about, he's more worried about intrusions than he is about articulating the need for it. On the, I think on the higher um, understanding of law, as in the natural law or God's law, then I think it's, it's, it's much more um, the law of what it means for us to flourish, right? That, uh, that this is, um, so I, you know, I, if I'm talking with my students, we talk about uh, you know, the, the prospective athlete who wants to be excellent, um, she will restrict aspects of her life, she will, she will not sleep in, she will restrict her diet, um, she will turn down other opportunities to have the freedom to be a great athlete. And so I do think that Lewis's deeper conception of God's law for us is that there are things that it would say no to, but for the purpose of this this deeper purpose of being who God calls us to be. Is that? You've put it excellently, yes. Okay, great, thank you. Thank you, first of all. So we see in The Weight of Glory, Lewis says, of course, that we are all heading into an inevitable eternal destiny to either heaven or hell and all inadvertently helping each other to one or the other. And he depicts this very greatly, of course, in The Great Divorce. Um, So my question is, in light of this fact of the eternal destiny, how does retributive um, punishment and justice um, recognize the, uh, including capital punishment, recognize the dignity of both the perpetrator and the victim. He thinks that it respects their dignity because uh, they are treated as someone who could have known better, right? So um, when we think about an animal doing something wrong, we might scold it, but we don't blame it in the same way. It is only someone who has enough dignity to be able to choose and who knows what's right. Um, and in, in from his point of view, when, when he, this, is, this is something that comes up in his treatment of purgatory, which is... Uh, controversial among some, but basically saying, that, you know, if, if I need to be cleansed or punished, I should want that, right? That I deserve it. Um, you're, you're exactly right about uh, this question of capital punishment raises it in particular and, and remains a live issue. He, he nowhere has a considered treatment of that. He did write a couple letters uh, to the newspaper. Lewis did not like newspapers, never read them, or he said he didn't read them. He said if something important enough happens, Uh, someone would tell him. Um, But he did write to a few newspapers, and on one, on capital punishment, he doesn't argue for, with a positive view that that, that capital punishment is absolutely right, but he undermines the argument that it's necessarily wrong. So I think he was not quite uh, settled on it. Um, His his argument was that uh, he's not sure that anyone who needed to spend 40 years um, of the rest of their life in prison would be any more likely to come to faith than someone who has I think he says two weeks until the gallows. So um, so I think he, I don't want to, you got to be careful, I don't want to say what I think, what Lewis said, um, but there's room in there for the sort of thinking that, that uh, when it comes to someone's reception of the truth such that they might be saved, it's not clear, entirely clear that living the rest of one's life in, in prison would be more likely to lead to that than, than, the, than capital punishment. That said, I don't want to say that Lewis uh, officially or or publicly um, endorsed capital punishment. I think he was uneasy about it, as I think anyone should be. Um, but he, he did not he did not argue against it either.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Doctor Watson, for your uh, your talk today. Um, the first question was, uh, made me think of uh, Lewis's chapter on hierarchy and preface to Paradise Lost as one of those places where he definitely. Uh, You you can see Lewis kind of does think there's room for equality, but he also deeply loves the sense of hierarchy that he sees in Milton. Um, My question for you uh, is really based off of your reading of Lewis and his, right, he uh, he wrote so much that you've you've read uh, so much of what he wrote. Um, Lewis seems to be incredibly prophetic in that he, writing across the late 30s, 40s, into the 50s, I mean, he without the, not in particulars, but in very broad trends, he accurately predicted several of the moves that modernity would make. Um, some of them that seem obvious to me at least are the, at the end of Abolition of Man, he's sort of outlining the transhumanist movement. Uh, he projects that globalism is going to be the trend. Uh, he almost is talking about some of the big tech privacy invasions that are possible today without the actual technology in his day. Uh, he, he thought the government was going to continue to grow and that would continue to be a danger to to liberty. Uh, so with that, uh, what in your view is it, what allowed Lewis to be so prophetic? Why was he able to look at his world and kind of see the trends and be more right than wrong in in those broad, sweeping kind of senses?
1: That's a fun question. Um, yeah, I would. And just recently, Ross Douthat just had a a piece about Lewis's that hideous strength and how prescient he thinks it is. which I would commend to you. Um, if you if you also want to see a bit of um, Lewis, that that transhumanist. Um, subject you mentioned, Google, Ray Kurzweil, um, who is, was, may still be the chief engineer of Google um, and and has been uh, waiting for the singularity, um, takes hundred and something pills every day and has collected every scrap of information about his father, whom he tragically lost too early, in the hopes that once the AI reaches singularity, it will be able to effectively recreate his father and they'll be able to commune in the cloud. So, so ideas that sound quite to speak of Gnosticism, right? Sound outlandish to put it mildly, but also a fellow who has several patents. And again, if, if Google, Google kind of has an effect on our lives. So a, a real guy. Um, when Lewis, you know, so uh, sometimes people um, will dismiss Lewis a little bit as a children's author or, or think he's overdone. And, and there are a lot of people who talk about him a lot and I'm guilty of that. Um, my response to that is that uh, Cambridge University created a chair in Renaissance and medieval literature, to steal him from Oxford. And Cambridge doesn't steal people from Oxford unless those people are pretty, are pretty good scholarly chops. And in, in his inaugural address uh, at Cambridge, he, um, he talks about himself as a dinosaur. Um, and because he sees himself as being of the age that is past, of the ancient and medieval age, and, and he feels out of touch with, with modernity. Um, and, uh, and so the dinosaur thing is: get a look at me while you can. There won't be many more of me left, right? So, in terms of how he could do it, he—I do think he's remarkable. Um, there are a number of remarkable thinkers, and, we, and there's been talks on them uh, this week. Uh, and Father Newhouse said, you know, there are people who can stop reading C.S. Lewis and those who can't, and the latter are eventually thought to be Lewis scholars. Uh, and so, <laughs> in, in my own life, I—you know—I'm always got something by Lewis, but then I'm just consistently impressed with his insights here, there, and everywhere. There are some things I think he got wrong, um, which <laughs> is a different talk. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, I think he's remarkable. And I think that's because he lived through uh, languages and books and, uh, in, in the different epochs and eras. Uh, he, he was able to read. Um, you know, he, he said he sometimes found himself thinking in Greek. For those of you who know another language, you to the point where, you know, when it's if you're an American and you wake up and it's raining and you think "il pleut," you know, you you know French. If that's what comes, he just he just was inhabited in those things, Um, and then he also, uh, you know, he lived a life at Oxford that was kind of the the Protestant version of a monastery, right? He wasn't married. um, Every night to dinner was with other scholars. Um, He was asked by Oxford to write the uh, the the. Oxford um, University Press entry for they did, they did a, a volume on each century of literature so the uh, the Oxford English History of the sixteenth century which it turns out to be O H E L he called it his O Hell project um, and for that he read every book in the Bodleian Library that was published in you know sixteenth century so the guy the guy was just he was gifted. And then he worked. I mean, he's like, Michael Jordan was incredibly gifted and worked his tail off. And I think Lewis in some ways, and that might be the first time Lewis has ever been compared to Michael Jordan. So I want to get that, get that out there. But, yeah, I, just, I do think he's remarkable. Um, not perfect, but a pretty pretty remarkable fellow. Um, I don't know where. Yeah, yeah, no one among
2: us is perfect. Uh, personally, having come from the smug comfort of being an anarcho-capitalist and the belief that government is essentially evil and that the worst thing could happen if uh, anarcho-capitalism didn't work is another government... Having moved into reality based on the foundation that you've outlined, which is natural law is both self-evident and impossible for us to fulfill, there is that tension between, yes, we have to have a government, but then, as in the case of the hooligans, the government fails us. And I expect that there is no answer to this from C.S. Lewis nor anyone else. What is the yardstick by then which we can measure particular government activities as to whether they are just
1: and in accordance with natural law? Good grief. Uh, that's a that's a tough one. Um, I mean, one yardstick, I think, would be, uh, you know, when we think about the rule of law, one requirement of the rule of law is that it applies to everybody or should. And that's never going to be perfectly um, applied. Uh, but some systems will get closer to it than than others. If we think about, you know, the only teaching parable. I think that's right. In the Old Testament uh, is Nathan's story about the 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 rich man who steals the poor man's you, right? And it's used to, um, to illustrate what David did with Bathsheba. And when David's ire is um, fueled against this rich man who has stolen the poor man's you, he says that, you know, surely this man must die. And Nathan's response is, you are the man, right? So one test then of a, of a government that has some um, integrity is can those in charge and the rich and powerful get in trouble, Um, And we can all think of examples in the United States and and in other countries that are represented in this room where that has not been the case. Um, But it's also it's reason to I, I would take some comfort, irrespective of the particular details of both cases. I do not want to get into this, but that we've had a couple of presidents in my lifetime who have been impeached. Even if you don't agree with either impeachment or both, that a president has to worry about that strikes me as a good sign about our system. As problematic as our system is in many ways. So that would be one, one test I would give is, is um, are those in charge worried um, about the law at all? And, uh, and we'll, you know, that continues to be a, an ongoing story even now in our headlines. So, okay.
0: Having recently read um, Screwtape Makes a Toast, I was wondering uh, in regards to the discussion on equality that was brought up earlier, are you sure he didn't read Tocqueville? Um, just, yeah. And if not, where do you think he got this uh, idea on equality of how um, oh, the example in that Makes a Toast is the emperor that just takes the sword out in the field and chops off all the heads of the, of the wheat. Um, right. where, what influences do you think is there and do you think that, um, or why was Lewis so passionate about this idea of equality?
1: Um, well it's, yeah you're, you're, it's, it's actually dangerous to say that I know he didn't read Tocqueville I don't think he read Tocqueville I can't find any information so my little trick for figuring out a shorthand if Lewis read somebody is there's a th- three volume set of his letters which are if you're a Lewis fan they're wonderful to read through and you will see him responding to things like uh, his Joy's ex-husband about what to do with the kids after she's died I mean it's really quite um, poignant and personal um, and I look in those in the, in the index in Tocqueville, and Tocqueville is not there um, you know uh, Roosevelt. Uh, he's in there a few times, so it could be that he he would have read Tocqueville, um, but I, I don't know that he did. But you're you're exactly right that that um, that concern about uh, the liability of a democratic culture. Um, so yeah, as as to his different influences, um, I in some ways both of them would have been uh, had had some of the same classical education. Um, I I don't know that I can give you at this point like the five books that he would have read. That would have led him to that, those conclusions. He, does, he, he was enchanted by aristocracy, um, but aristocracy's liability is cruelty. Um, and so given his belief in the fall, um, he, he was not an aristocrat for government, but he was pretty sympathetic to it culturally. Um, and so similarly, Tocqueville uh, was an aristocrat. Uh, but who saw that the tide of democracy as aligned with God's will and um, no, how much he believed in God doing that in a personal, kind of theistic way is, is debatable, um, but inevitable. Um, and so they both kind of shared this uh, yearning or appreciation for the glories of past accomplishments, while at the same time both being, I think, horrified by how those systems treated. Uh, the least of these, right? Um, so I'm punting a little bit on the exact sources. I think it was just part of the warp and woof of, of all of his education to uh, to appreciate the greats. Um, he, I mean, he was, and he was a Platonist and an Aristotelian, and, and Plato, uh, you know, wasn't a big fan of democracy. Um, killed his guy, so, yeah. Hi.
0: Hi. Hi. Um... So something I know about C.S. Lewis's conversion is that it seems to have been prompted through a large period of time and then eventually through divine revelation. So he describes his conversion experience as getting into a cab and coming out a completely different person, and I'm paraphrasing there. Um, C.S. Lewis is a really powerful force for natural law proponents uh, because out of that conversion experience he can share truths for, through well-crafted metaphors and through story. Um, however, I wonder how we can replicate that work today and if it's effective outside of divine revelation. So what are some practical ways that the, this modern generation of true seekers can copy Lewis's persuasive work in the 21st century?
2: Thank you.
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so Lewis... In in the Screwtape Letters, um, the Screwtape Letters publication uh, is what gets him famous in the United States. He's on the cover of Time magazine after that. He has Screwtape say to, uh, and and if you haven't read them, it's a series of letters from a senior demon to a junior demon, the junior demon attempting to steer a human patient to hell. So it's advice on how to get someone to hell. Lewis said it it was his least favorite thing to write because it it was dry and gritty to put oneself in the mindset of hell. And in the first letter, he says, uh, you're, you're relying on reason, to try and get your patient to hell, and human beings don't really rely on that anymore. Um, it used to be that they, they relied on reason, if they were persuaded something was true, then they would actually change their lives and do it, and now they don't. Um, so Lewis, while still believing in the legitimacy of reason and writing uh, books that relied on reason, Abolition of Man, Miracles, Problem of Pain, uh, Mere Christianity to some extent, uh, he shifts his approach to a more uh, fictional narrative approach. In one essay he says that um, you know, people resist. If you, if you tell someone the right thing to do, the immediate response is resistance. But if you can illustrate something good through a story, then he says that they can sleep past, or can sneak past those watchful dragons that resist being told what's right. Um, and so at, at the same time, he would very much oppose the idea of Christians and other people of, of goodwill, other faiths, thinking, okay, here's the moral I want to get out into society. What's the story that can do that? When he talks about how he wrote "The Lion, the Wish and the Wardrobe," he says, "I saw a fawn carrying parcels through the snow right and that 's what started the story and later this this lion kind of came in so he would while he does think that, that um, we need stories and fiction and music and culture not for the sake of it has to be those have to be good right those have to be told as stories and, and good literature themselves and then in Lewis's case, the moral and the faith came naturally into them because it was coming from him and that's what he was all about. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it I see everything else. So I think Christians, we we cannot be C.S. Lewis. He was, I think, a a one-off. But we can, I think, follow his lead to some extent in doing and providing and working on good things that can win over our, our neighbors who don't share our faith, who say, oh, that's really good. Um, and get it past those watchful dragons into the water, into the culture. Particularly now that um, I think, in my own view, politically speaking, the, the, the time at which the Protestant-Catholic-Jew kind of consensus is done, and we can, we can. I'm not sure it was ever right to take on um, that mantle in the first place. But we are going to be more, I think, more of a, of a minority, which gives us something of a freedom to just let loose and be ourselves and, and see what happens from it in the different spheres of. Uh, Law and literature and music and art and all those things. So that's sort of a convoluted answer. What we really really need there is that's a a good book project there for someone to write, I think. Um, uh, I think we're here, yeah. I have a more uh, broad question about uh, the relationship between Tolkien and Lewis. I was curious, it seems to me that while Lewis is uh, rather conservative about some things, that Tolkien is much, much more so, more skeptical about technology and democracy and so on. Uh, do you think that there was any record of them interacting about this or other kind of topic yeah, so um, Bradley Berzer is here this week, and he would he would be able to give an even better answer to that, um, but uh, they certainly did uh, share a distrust of. Technology. We see this in The Lord of the Rings, right, with um, Saruman's realm. And uh, Lewis even, you know, he, he didn't really ever learn how to drive a car. He, he thought cars, um, he, he sounds like a front porch person, if you're familiar with Front Porch Republic, that the introduction of cars has destroyed the sense of space that you can now get someplace uh, 60 miles away in an hour. He, he used to go on these, these long walks. He'd go on these walking tours with friends. Um, where Tolkien would be more conservative than Lewis, Lewis on marriage. Um, I, I agree with Tolkien on this. Lewis has some, I think, some problematic things to say um, about marriage. And then in his, his own marriage was a little controversial uh, with, with Joy David and Gresham in terms of how it started. He basically got married to keep her in the country um, and then uh, not, you know, fell in love with her. And they, they were married in a real sense. Tolkien wrote a letter to Lewis about his treatment of marriage and mere Christianity. Um, and and never sent it, but we have the letter and we can see that that difference. So um, they're certainly, they were they were good friends. There was a bit of a, you know, not a, quite a falling out, but a, a cooling of the relationship. And it, it did, I think, center around when Joy came into the picture. Um, but I think that there was a reconciliation after her passing away. Um, and there's, there's a number of good works out there looking at the two of them. Tolkien was certainly crucial as, as, in playing a role in, in Lewis's coming to faith. Um, uh, in, other, in other areas, Tolkien uh, could be um, uh, not as conservative as one would think um, in terms of uh, his rewriting and reimagining some of the, the northern and Norse literature works. Um, that's something I've just been learning about recently. But, but yeah, no, it's a fascinating area, and I think the, the two of the most um, interesting figures that just happen to end up being very good friends in the same place. It would have been fun to have been a fly on the wall. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Greetings.
2: Um, <clears throat> You talked about Lewis making a move um, from a more libertarian get-off-my-lawn sense, uh, and I think you said later on uh, a little more concern for the poor and other things like that that he starts to have factoring into his political thinking. Very bright guy, right? We're in a very bright room. As I pastor in a church, I've got people in the room who um, are morally fumbling. Um, They they struggle to tie their own moral laces, you know, if you will, right? How did when Lewis looked at the world, he's got this kind of self-reliance that affords him a kind of liberty. When he looks at the world and he sees, uh, Nietzsche call him the bungled and the botched, when he sees people that are kind of um, broken, struggling, they can't put their own moral t- laces together, does he ever talk about that? About about the element of society that just doesn't have the benefits of his education and thinking? And-
1: yeah. Uh, yeah, he does. And, and you would find that more in his letters. Um, then, so there's two... Two ways to answer that. One is, uh, once Lewis became as popular as he was, he got a lot of letters and he wrote everybody back. Um, towards the end of his life, his brother Warney would help, but he almost felt it was a duty. He hated Christmas in part because he got so many cards and felt this kind of you know, categorical imperative requirement to write everybody back. Uh, he does write about that. So he he, um, he got to know people and their problems because they would write to him about their problems. They would also send him stuff. Amer- Americans, in particular, Lewis had a really funny, view, or at least relationship with with the United States. Uh, he married an American, had two American stepsons, but then in some ways found found the United States uh, culturally problematic. Um, he, you know, he, he had about a, as privileged a life as one could have um, without being, you know, a, a baron or something. Um, but he also lived through World War II, and the rationing went on. I think through 1956. I mean, the rationing in Britain was significant even past the war. So people would send him stuff all the time and he would hear about their problems and write back. So that's one element. The other is his, his marriage. So joy, David McGresham, her ex-husband was abusive, um, was, uh, outlandish, um, um, and mistreated her and their boys. And he saw through her experience, how hard it would be to be trying to raise two kids, just doing it on your own. He is kind of a, Hey, just do it on your own sort of thing. Um, a man, in, you know, calling his home as castle, but in her position, kind of mistreated and then, you know, abused by a husband. And um, so he writes a letter to an American in Florida and basically says, you know, I've said many hard things about our British health system, right? He's been critical of it, but it's better than if there's nothing, right? Which is a a little bit of a, um, you know, a view that it's not the ideal, but it'd be better than there being no safety net at all. So I think it was his his experience knowing joy and seeing what it was like for her to try and struggle for a while that um, it helped him appreciate a little bit more that there's got to be something out there for, for those folks. Um, ideally, it would be the church and uh, you know, family and charity. But uh, if that's not there, um, you know, then there needs to be something else. Yeah.
0: Hey, good morning. Um, so, Lewis's views on equality are, you might say, provocative, given today's atmosphere of yeah. gender equality, gender relations. Could you contrast his view of equality and hierarchy, um, I guess, including, like, what he talks about in the end of that hideous strength with today's climate?
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, Lewis, you know, uh, the earlier, his earlier question from Josh saying he was prophetic, and I think he— um, saw the direction things were going. He has another essay called Democratic Education. In, and then the, the screw tape proposes a toast is about American education in particular. He had it published in the Saturday Evening Post. Um, and he basically predicts everybody everybody wins a uh, trophy culture. Um, and uh, so I, I think, you know, he would be, I mean, he, he would be in danger of being canceled if he were around today. He also believed in... in um, uh, wifely obedience to husbands and things like that. So he had a more traditional view on those things. Um, in, although he, he makes a, a paradoxically pro-working class, pro-less educated case in that democratic education piece, because he argues for um, just a, a straightforward aristocracy in education. A- education should be aimed at the students who do best. And then he anticipates the objection, which I think is what he'd hear today. He says, "Well, what, what about the parents of Tommy?" And Tommy just sits in the back of the classroom. No offense, anyone sitting in the back. Uh, and, and in the back, he's he's whittling. And what you're going to do is you're going to come to him and say, "Hey, let's you know that whittling is really great. Let's going to give you we're going to give you a first class grade for that and turn it into." And Lois said, "Leave him alone. He doesn't he doesn't want that." Right. He's he's the one who on the you know, out on the play field is is probably beating up the, the eggheads. Um and that it, he'll have a happy life doing something else. In, in other words, Lewis argues there that one does not have to go to college or get a doctorate in order to be successful, that you can have a fulfilling, genuinely good, uh, flourishing life in the trades. Um, so his argument is elitist in one respect, in insofar as he wants education to be aimed at uh, the kids who do well in in calculus and, and Greek and all that. Um, but he doesn't think that that is the only way to have a good life, and he defends. And he actually goes on to say, democracy needs folks like Tommy to keep the eggheads in line, because the fall doesn't just apply you know, to one class more than another. It's the eggheads who get us into the most trouble. Um, so you know, it'd be, it's, it's fun to think about what someone would um, be like in a, in a different era. I think uh, he would be allergic to um, some of the egalitarianism that we have today, because he, he, he said he says, we, if you make it into an ideal, you effectively are going to be um, fostering envy, and I think a lot of our political discourse is fueled by uh, envy, um, and and a you know um, and gratitude is the is the opposite of that, and we're in short supply of that. So, yeah, yeah. I hate to interrupt, but we have time for one more
2: question. Okay. Lucky me. Yeah. <laughs> and God in the Dock, he has a little discourse on uh, the, the tyranny of the moral busybody. Mm. And I think that's a theme through a lot of his fiction, that oftentimes the attack on liberty or on what is truly good comes from the projected position of the moral high ground. So seeing how today that's really the case, that a lot of the attack on liberty comes from empathy, tolerance, these, these virtues – How could we learn from Lewis to communicate the importance of liberty over maybe some of those projected
1: high grounds of the moral good in our society? Uh, I think you're, I'll first affirm that you're right while thinking about how to answer the question. Um, He at one point says that theocracy is his most detested form of government because it is, uh, because those who are in charge of enforcing it will be motivated by their duty to God to make sure that we're all doing what we're supposed to be doing. Whereas other folks might rest or sleep, but the holy motivation to keep people in line. is. The, and, and so, yeah, the moral busybody, he, he is some, throughout all his works, he really doesn't uh, care for that. And, and there's a personal aspect of that to his life as well, biographically, which uh, we won't have time to get into. Um, so how do we kind of combat the overweening, um, Crucible-like atmosphere that there is, particularly uh, on social media, can be um, uh, exaggerated. I think it's going to be standing up uh, to, to to the bullies. Um, I think it's going to be it's going to take some people who are who who are elites do that. Um, whatever you make of, of J.K. Rowling as an author or the Harry Potter stuff or some of her other views, she's kind of refused to shut up about her views of that about women being. Biologically women um, and and I think that 's had an enormous impact and, and will continue um, and I, so I think one of the things that we just have to what we can do is is not uh, give in to the little requests that we 're asked to do, so how that might be manifest um, for me as a professor in some circles i don 't have pronouns. If you have to look at me and wonder what my pronouns are, um, you know I just <laughs> Seems pretty obvious, but so, so I think there's going to be little things like that where we just don't we actually stand up, and, and it's going to take people when they're pressured by companies or societies or or even families to say, "Look, I live, we live in a free country. You can live how you like it. I'm not going to support that or buy into it." And I think we have, at some point we will have to pay some penalties on that. But I, I there's this. Um, I'm not a classicist, but Horace has this line. I won't be able to say it in Latin, but something to the effect that if you if you drive out nature, she will come back with a pitchfork. And I think in a lot of these, um, t- these debates and these two-minute hates that we have online, different places, uh, we're, trying, we're driving out nature. Um, and so in the long term and the medium term, we might be uh, losing on the short term. I think th- things will come back, and I think we have to kind of stand our ground, and then um, that's going to that's help. People don't, people don't like resistance, and, and they're empowered by going along. So that's, I, don't, I don't know if that's, that's how Lewis would put it, but I think that's, that's what I would say. Okay. Thank you for coming.
0: Thanks for listening to Lectures in History. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books that Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about books that shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.